Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Michael Reed Show on LMFM. Thursday, the 2nd of August, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Parents continue to subsidise an underfunded education system which claims to offer free education with an increasing number of parents forced into debt in order to provide the basics for their children's education. This is according to Bernardo's, which publishes its annual school costs survey today. It's a survey of some 2,200 parents and it highlights in its results that not only is free education expensive in this country but the basic cost of sending a child to school will increase this year. Bernardo says the government is placing families under significant stress and running the risk of leaving the most vulnerable children without the basics they need. June Tinsley, Head of Advocacy with Bernardo's is on the line and you say, June, that it it's time to provide truly free education. In fact, you're saying there's a constitutional responsibility on the government to do this. Morning, Michael. Um, yes, and I suppose this is not a, a new call from Bernardo's. We've been raising this issue for, for many years now. And um, I suppose the reality is um, Irish children do have a right to um, free primary education under the Constitution. And that right is not being fulfilled if parents have to pay for everything that a child needs to fulfill the curriculum. And again, Bernardes is, is calling on the government to honour this constitutional right so all children will have genuinely free primary education and ultimately free secondary education. But the figures this year show that um, the, the amounts have gone up um, and parents are getting more and more stressed out about the financial burden that they have to endure. Um, 20% of the secondary school parents are having to force to borrow money from family or friends um, or credit unions or even money lenders in order to meet the, the costs of sending their children back to school. All right, and others then are taking it out of savings or, or putting off some other spend. Yes, parents are having to make real choices and sacrificing things like having to pay rent, pay um, heating bills, cutting out on food or days out. Or an, and I suppose it's just a genuinely stressful time for parents, um, especially if you've got more than one child in the school system, um, especially if you're of a low-income family. Um, and although parents do know that these costs are coming down the track every single year, it's just a significant burden. And this year, the rates have gone up, gone up so the um, pressure will be even of, of greater extent. And parents very clearly said to us this year that they're just frustrated at having to continuously prop up an underfunded education system education is a public service it should be fully funded by the state schools are operating on an absolute shoestring um, and as a result that the parents are subsidizing um where the government is not uh, 
giving enough funding to run the school system. Around this time last year, Bernardo's released its annual school cost survey and we spoke about it on the programme and I think uh, we finished off uh, the conversation half tongue in cheek, uh, but knowing the reality of the situation, that we'd be talking about the same type of problems again this year. I think uh, we finished off the conversation the year before that in exactly the same way and for many years before that because Bernardo's has been releasing uh, these surveys uh, for, what, uh, over a decade at this stage, is it, June? Yeah, it's about over a decade. It's right. This is, I think, 13th year doing it. Mm. Um, and yes, there's a, a huge sense of deja vu about this um, and it's very depressing to realise that the children um, that the parents were filling out the survey for us 13 years ago have now completed the school system um, and very little has changed. There has been some steps that we can tangibly see. For example, there's been um, a greater availability of school book rental schemes, for example. Um, And I suppose some schools have been brilliant in switching to generic uniforms or rolling out comprehensive school book rental schemes. But essentially, the responsibility rests on the government to ensure that the school system is appropriately funded and that parents don't have to subsidise it. Okay, and that that will feed into the voluntary contributions uh, because uh, they're payments that parents give to schools, generally speaking, in order to keep the lights on and to heat the school and so on, and the day-to-day costs of running the school, which should be funded by the government, but because of a shortfall in that funding, parents are asked to make a contribution. It's called a voluntary contribution, but it's as an accurate a term as the term free education in this country. That's true. And I suppose, interestingly, this year we saw the call for voluntary contributions um, on parents go up. We saw uh, 67% of parents are being asked for a voluntary contribution at primary level and the average amount is about €85. Um, Over 70% of parents are asked for a voluntary contribution. How is that? Uh, And uh, I mean, there's uh, still a a significant cost in terms of uniforms, it would seem, for a lot of parents. As you say, some schools are introducing generic uniforms. uh, But when you get the average from the 2,200 parents that you've surveyed, uh, it's a significant cost which feeds into these costs. But we've had so much talk about uniforms and voluntary contributions in particular. You would have thought that there would have been some action. Uh, Indeed, I thought there was some action, some political action. The Minister has given guidance in relation to all of this. There was a survey uh, that the schools were to carry out uh, uh, of parents, uh, but the costs continue to remain. True, and I suppose even on foot of doing that survey with the parents uh, a couple of years ago, the Minister issued a circular to all schools last year calling on them to um, switch to more generic uniforms or switch to an option of having an iron-on or sewn-on crest. Um, And what the parents are saying to us is that they haven't seen the benefit of that, by and large. Um, Overall, uh, uniforms are more prevalent at secondary level than at primary level. um, And we're also seeing that parents think uniforms are a great idea because it, it does ensure a bit of consistency and school identity. But there's a strong call for more generic uniforms to be adopted and have kind of sewn on crest or iron on crests and things like that, or even having less crested uniform items on the the shopping list. Mm. Do you really need a crested tracksuit and a crested uniform? Um, And some schools, as I said, have made that transition. Others haven't. And parents are certainly um, feeling the pinch for it, especially if you've got more than one child in the school system. 
um, and your uniform costs alone are exceeding um, 300 quid. Okay. Uh, and I, I suppose the state does cover that to some degree uh, because uh, you talk about the cost of sending children to school, senior infants, for example, at 360 euro. 380 is the total cost for four class pupils and 765 euro for a first year secondary school pupil. But of course, not everybody has to pay all of that because uh, there's grants from the government and some people will get the back to school clothing and footwear allowance. Correct. And I suppose it's important to, to flag that there are significant variations within this because some parents won't necessarily need to buy a uniform every year. Some parents will have a Google rental scheme that covers um, everything at a subsidised cost. So I suppose these, the costs that we've calculated are just the basics mm. um, and they are averaged out across the, the country. Um, and I suppose the the thing to, to bear in mind with the back to school clothing and footwear allowance is it, it does offer a, a lifeline to many low income families. Um, but Again, the rates that are are offered are still below what is needed um, and there's a very strict uh, threshold and eligibility criteria around it. So even still, many low-income families are telling us that they are just above the threshold despite um, being on the family income supplement and and those other payments. And for those who do get the supplement, uh, they're €245 below what's needed on average for a senior infant, €265 below what's needed for a four-class student. In other words, they have to find the €265 despite getting the grant from the government and with uh, a first-year secondary school pupil, it's €515 that's missing. Yes, exactly. And I suppose um, we believe that if there was greater investment by the government in the school system, for example, raising capitation rates, that would offset the need for voluntary contributions. If the state made the investment to provide genuinely free school books throughout the system, that would guarantee savings of up to €240 for a first-year pupil um, and around €100 for a primary school pupil. So those savings would just be hugely beneficial to parents. Does this come as a, a surprise to parents, parents sending children to school for the first year if a child is going into uh, junior infants uh, this year? Uh, will they be surprised at the cost of uh, kitting them out uh, with their clothes and their shoes and their books and that, and, and that the school might ask for a contribution as well? Um, I, I think new parents would be surprised. Um, because I, I, I think certainly at secondary level, um, because the books are, are so um, expensive in, in second level at about €240. Euro. Um, and of course, at first year, you need to buy everything you need for the entire junior curriculum. So it's a very expensive year. And I do think parents um, are quite surprised at, at the volume of that cost. Um, and at primary level, some there is ability to recycle some books among siblings, but often that isn't the case. And then when you have to keep buying workbooks um, because you can't reuse them, again, that just kind of frustrates parents that they can't be recycled and as a result reduce the cost on um, as children go through the school system and, and siblings can share the books. In line with the publication of the surveys over many years now, as you say, Bernardo's has been campaigning for free education to be free in this country. And you're estimating the cost of that and what should be, in your view, the first phase of implementing free education in this country at primary level to be a little over €100 million. Yes, we've done the calculations and the Department of Education have kind of um, approved these costings and essentially for 103 million extra um, a year, which works out at about €185 per pupil in the primary school system, that money would ensure that every uh, primary school pupil would have free school books 
there'd be no call for voluntary contributions or classroom resources. There'd be um, a restoration of the capitation rate back to 2010 levels and also those who are availing of the um, school transport scheme that they wouldn't have to pay that either. So it's a huge amount that you get for a very little investment and the Department of Education budget is currently um, 10 billion annually and I think to invest the 103 million would is actually only kind of pocket change for them. Mm. Um, and Bernard is even saying, well, why don't we even do it incrementally? Like this year's budget, you could invest 20 million and that would guarantee all free um, primary school books for all children. And some of us are, are still thinking in shillings and pence, of course, and uh, the idea of 10 billion euro can be confusing, but that's 10,000 million uh, and you're talking about 100 million. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's... I suppose it's easy for me to say it, it mm. is pocket change when you're talking about yeah. so many figures. Um, but essentially, with um, 20 million, you you could make a significant saving for parents. Um, and that 20 million would ensure free school books and workbooks for all primary school pupils as a stepping stone towards honouring the child's constitutional right to free primary education. And it's a, the, the system purports to be a free education system, but the reality is it's heavily subsidised by parents it puts a huge amount of pressure on parents every single year um, and those children from low-income families are um, more negatively affected and it impacts on how they succeed in the education system. And you're suggesting that this would be an investment uh, and like any investment there should be a return and uh, the reward would be the betterment of our society going into the future. Well, certainly, and I suppose that uh, the minister himself obviously wants to make Ireland's education system the best in Europe by 2020, um, but that's not going to be achieved unless you significantly invest in it um, mm. to ensure a level playing field and that everybody can reach their potential educationally. And I suppose Ireland is a bit of an outlier in this regard because um, many other countries ensures that everything a child needs to to meet the curriculum hmm. is provided by the state. Uh, and you're suggesting a, an increase in uh, the budget at secondary level, uh, similar scale, uh, slightly more, 126, 127 million there over a number of years to make education free at second level. Uh, but this, of course, uh, would mean that the children of very wealthy people would be getting a free education. Uh, would it be better to invest that money into the allowances that are given to people who are on lower incomes? Well, I think the reality is free education was, as I said, it's in the Constitution at primary level and it was promised in 1966 to all secondary school pupils. So the the commitments politically are there. It's just the political will and the investment is needed to make them a reality for all children. And I do think it needs to be all children because it's so important that that we create a level playing field for all children to be able to reach their educational potential and to succeed. And there's, there's no point... Um, aspiring to make the, the best educational system in the world um, if you're seg- segmenting who's going to benefit from it and who's not. Okay, well, uh, hate to say it, but uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about uh, pretty much uh, the same concerns that you have this year, this time next year. But thank you indeed for joining us as always. Thanks, Michael. Thank Thanks. you indeed. June Tinsley, Head of Advocacy with Bernardo's Ireland. Now, Unpost has received 110 applications uh, from postmasters around uh, the country expressing an interest in a voluntary retirement package. And Kieran McEntee, Vice President of the Irish Postmasters Union, joins us. Kieran, does this mean if those applications. Good morning, good morning, good morning to you, Kieran. If those applications are accepted, does it mean that 110 post offices will close? 
Well, this is a package that we negotiated with Antpost. If people wanted to retire, and there would always be a post office within 15 kilometres or 500 people living in the area. So this is these are offices that people have uh, expressed an interest in retiring. And there will be a post office. Their service will be put to the next office within 15 kilometres of where they are. But if the applications are accepted, the 110 existing post offices will close down, will they? Yes, that's 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 what they're saying. That's what the people are saying. Yeah, if they want to go, there'd be no post office in that area at the moment. But it'd be, there is still a post office within 15 kilometres or within 500. If there's 500 people living in the area, and in order to do that, uh, I think they're planning on opening 20 new post offices. Is that right? Well, they've been talking about open maybe more post offices in different areas, in, in bigger catchment areas, and to try to develop a new system of post offices all over Ireland and trying to. There's a lot of post offices struggling there, and a lot of them post offices that this, we've got a good package for them for to retire. And I think it's, it's I think it's very 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 wrong. Whoever released that list of people and names to, for to be put on the airways, them people have an entitlement. I can retire in the morning if I want to for my post office here, and I just I apply to the, to the company. Only we got a, a, a good package this time for the people that did want to retire, and I think it's very very uh, unfair to whoever released the, the list out to put people's names in public of the post office. I would not comment on them. I think they have a genuine right. They've given great service to their areas for over maybe 30, 40 or 50 years and for this to be flagged. And some of the post offices have been rang. Mm. And I think it's not very very fair. They have, they, have, they have their life and worked hard all their years and they have a right to retire when they want to retire. If I'm retiring in the job in the morning, nobody rings me and asks me where... Why are you retiring? They're retiring because they want to retire. Mm. And, and I tell you, Michael, very, very annoying me in this. If the people would go in and use the rest for the post offices around there, we wouldn't be in this situation. I was on your show about a year and a half ago, and we went in on, on this negotiations with Post to try to keep as many post offices open as we can. And there is no compulsory closures. No post office will be closed mm. if the person doesn't want to retire themselves. Yeah. I, I think we had a very heated conversation uh, maybe two years ago, Kieran, yeah. uh, about the value of the post office and uh, that, in fact, they're sole traders, uh, people uh, who are working uh, as self-employed persons in an industry that obviously isn't working for them. And you rejected that and said that they were very important parts of the community and that the community should stand up for their post office. Uh, And I think to a large degree, the community did stand up for their post office. In fact, I I think without exception, every community in the country stood up for their post office. Uh, And now that they're hearing that their post office is closing down, it shouldn't come as any surprise. Or or does it come as a surprise to you that people are concerned and they're ringing up to find out is that the case? Well, you're saying to support community. My, my post office is down over 3,000 in the last three years in wages. So the, the business is not going through the post office because I'm paid on commission myself. Mm. And I have no problem commenting on that. And I would be a small office. No, I understand. But you, and did, and did, I have my figures to show mm. that, that I am down, I'm down over 3,000 a year. Oh, so, I, mean, I don't dispute that, Kieran. But yes. do you understand the point that I'm putting to you, which is that you asked people to yes, support your yes. campaign. People did that. Uh, and now uh, they're learning that their local post office is closing and they're ringing up to inquire about yeah, it. Yeah, but Michael, Michael, that person that. has a right to retire if they want to retire. They, 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 they have worked all their lives 
mm. and, 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 and they retire and they can they can write in and, and, and complain and see what, what they can do for the area. But a person has a right to retire after so many years. Mm. He, he could have retired any quietly and maybe two months ago, and nobody would be never ringing about it at all because it just to mean the post office would have just faded away into. Okay, the... well, I, I take it that your your gripe then is not with the postmaster. Obviously, I take it it's not with the community who've supported the postmaster and wants wanted to continue to do that, but with the politicians who are, are drumming up sentiment about this. I mean, if a, a press release here from Thomas Byrne, uh, who as people listening will know has announced the closures of the post offices in County Meath. We've been hearing it all morning in the bulletins. No uh, harm in me repeating that it's Carn Ross, Bellustown, Tara, Dunsany, Rathmaline, Drumree and Batterstown. Uh, but he's saying it's really sad news for the rural communi- communities uh, that it's another blow to rural Ireland and the government has let people down. Is he politicising this? Well, they, they all love us, but they've done nothing for us. All politicians, all parties are out I had a politician rang last night, and I have to give him good credit that when I explained that to them, tell them he understood what the situation was. But all we need more services. It's like your LFFM uh, radio mm-hmm. station. If you don't get ads, if you don't get people listening to you, you you, you can't survive. And the same yeah. with the post office. We need more service through the post office. And all the TDs of all parties are up there in the bandwagon saying, yeah, we need support the post office. This deal was done between the Irish Postmasters Union and Anfust with mm. the help of a barrister called Mr Torloch O'Donnell, which uh, Dennis Nocton appointed. This was done between uh, the two parties because we knew down the line a lot of people were going to lose business because the business is going away. If we lose social welfare, there'll be a lot more post offices closed. And I wish that would be got to the politicians. And I'd like to know how many politicians is using their post offices. Mm. You mean, putting services through the post. I have a couple of good companies about here that looks after my post office and gives me... But how many politicians have you seen in the post office? Well, I have seen very few in the post office to support the post office. So, I mean, it's a question to be asked. We can all keep saying... Yeah, mm. blame everybody else. And I, and I, Michael, and I, I know me and you argue, but you only for your station and other stations like you, this would be a, a, a serious situation, far worse, because you have highlighted this over the mm. years mm. to let these people know that there is. There's lots of services out there. We could do the electoral register. We mm. could do the jar tax. We mm. could do the driver's license. But none of them things has come down the line. Actually, they're taking stuff away from us. Stuff has been pulled away gradually. Social welfare. If you go on a social employment scheme, you're made to go to have a bank account. Yep. Then you can come back to the post office to get your money. All right. And I do think that when I was on the radio saying, what's the point of keeping businesses open and subsidising self-employed people if they're losing money hand over foot? It made people think and they thought, no, well, actually, I do want my post office. And they decided to support your campaign or it may have fed into that conversation to some degree. Uh, But today we have Fianna Fáil politicians making uh, announcements such as uh, the one that Thomas Byrne has made. And it's the same across uh, the country. I see Mark McSharry giving out about post offices closing down in uh, Sligo uh, and other parts of the country. I'm sure if they were closing down in Loud, uh, we'd be hearing from the Finnefall uh, team there. Uh, but, uh, they were all advised, Michael, about this. They, yeah. the, the party was advised about a month ago what was happening. They're, they're suggesting that it's happening now that the doll has closed. <laughs> but, ah, I, yeah, but everybody has, yeah. <laughs> but the doll was open when they were advised, you're saying. Yes, they, they all knew this was coming down the line. This has gone on, uh, this has gone on from... Uh, 
before Christmas this year. Right. Actually, Mike and me and you were the, we were the dispute was when we had when we had um, Bobby Kerr in with 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 a deal done, and then it was uh, threw out. Mm. Remember back, Bobby Kerr was there. He did the two years deal. Yep. Tried to solve the post office network, and then there was a change, and it fell. So then it started before Christmas again, and this is the finish of it now. Right, but as you said earlier on, no post office is going to be forced to close not its one, doors. Not one. Nobody has to close if they don't want to. They can stay there in their own in their own in their own uh, post office until they want to retire themselves. And but if they retire, uh, and there isn't a post office as a result available to people within fifteen kilometres, uh, there will be another post office opened up or to a community of yeah, more than well, 500. Once, the, once yeah. it's to do with the, the social welfare uh, requirements that it has to be within 15 kilometres or 500 population. Okay, so that sounds like an alternative to the existing post office if the existing post office closes down. What do you say uh, to politicians who say the government have failed to provide any alternatives to these post offices when they close their doors? No, but that's, they're not reading the, the, the document that there is 15 kilometres. There's no post office closed within 15. There's another one within 15 kilometres. And if you check all around them, any of them post offices, a post office within 10 kilometres or maybe 5 kilometres in a lot of areas, even where I am here, even where I am here, if I close in the morning, there's three post offices within uh, 5 kilometres of me. Right. Uh, and what do you say to the politicians when they say the government failed communities uh, and uh, the dedicated and selfless staff who operated the post offices? Well, I'm a postmaster and I would say all politicians have failed the communities. They're all out uh, in the media saying to do this and do that. Get together and come up with a solution. Keep rural Ireland open by putting services in. I have a shop here, small rural shop struggling and I'm not being smart mm. it is struggling because the big stores are are, 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 are um, nailing me Yeah well you spelled it out in black and white for us uh, a few minutes ago uh, are you more optimistic now because of this deal because what we're talking about today is the deal that the Postmasters Union struck with on Post uh, and it will see an invis- investment of 50 million euro uh, does yeah. this give you hope? Yes, that does give you hope, and it gives it gives a person a future that wants to stay, and it gives a person that wants to go the opportunity, and they're not being forced to close. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's the big thing. There's no compulsory closures here, and and that, and that is a major thing that the person can stay there. And if a post office closes in an area, the business will go to the other post office, be transferred to the other post office, and it will give the other post office a chance of surviving. And maybe in five years' time, we don't know what's going to happen. What's rural Ireland? I was told by a politician, I not name his name, but sure, well, we can do this all on the phone. Well, that, if that's the attitude of some of the... And that, was a, that was an opposition politician mm, mm. said to me, we can do it on the phone. Yeah, you can send an email on your yes, phone and, uh, or whatever. We all yeah. understand that, but yeah. if I'm looking out here as a daycare centre that, that is, is celebrating, uh, I got an invitation to... Uh, some Kildare Care Centre has been celebrating, I think it's 40 years mm. open here, but the people are giving their services there to that for, for a senior citizen and Alzheimer's unit. You know what I mean? If you have to support local. If you want local to be alive, you have to support it. Okay, uh, and uh, just to conclude, uh, we've been hearing about some closures in me that you say people are entitled to retire if that's what they want to do. Uh, are you hearing of any closures in County Louth? No, I've heard no closures yeah. with Angie Lowe's. All right, Kieran. Listen, thanks indeed uh, for joining us here this Thank morning. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Kieran McIntyre, Vice President of the Irish Postmasters Union.
Now let's talk about the sale of 10,700 home loans by PTSB to start mortgages in affiliate of Lone Star. 7,400 of these are private homes, 3,300 by two let properties. David Hall of Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation is on the line and you're saying this is a horrible day for mortgage holders, David. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Yeah, this is like, you've got to understand that um, within the data given by Permanent TSB, a significant number of these people whom they have sold have engaged with the bank, but actually have no money. When you analyse it properly, they actually have no money. And this is, a, you know, not their fault. This is a problem that many people have had having lost jobs. Some have had uh, bad health. Some have had separations and some have had mental health issues and challenges. But nonetheless, Permanent TSB have assessed them. Um, and have found that they can't provide any solution for them. Other solutions they provide, the customer hasn't been able to meet, and they've then decided, uh, along with a few others, that they classify as non-engaging. But it's important to understand non-engaging, Michael. So I want to give you an example. This is a very important example. Yeah. There was a lady that was on the radar. She showed me last September when we launched our, our housing um, body, Eye Care Housing. He had her husband tragically took his own life in her in her, her back garden. At the time, PTSB owned the loan. I left PTSB in Philipsba uh, in five years ago where they, uh, when she was on 188 euros a week, they wanted the house from her and they wanted um, for her to give 50,000 euros to them uh, for the balance of the debt. They then reduced that to 40,000 euros. She and I said no. She's deemed non-cooperating and non-engaging. So it's very important to understand the bank's definition is unfair for that to be replicated throughout your listeners who are listening who are fortunately possibly not in arrears but are listening to people being defined and being pigeonholed uh, inappropriately. Okay, tragic and all as that story is, I'm sure you can't argue that that's typical of the type of person who hasn't paid anything in three and a half years. Yeah, and it's not, it's not you know, again, yeah, that's, that's correct. But the difficulty is there's, you know, many people in social housing who have been able to afford to pay uh, their housing and pay their housing needs. We have a current housing crisis. The average price, the average price, like, find me a Department of Environment anywhere in the world, please, Michael, who wouldn't be licking the lips at the prospect of buying homes for 175 grand in the current climate. That is the average price of these homes. So, you know, these are people who cannot afford. Many of your listeners would love to have a house with 175,000 euros. Many are struggling to meet their current mortgage payments, and many more are as well. But surely the issue here is that because these people aren't paying anything at all, uh, that I'm paying for it. I'm paying for it in my variable mortgage rate. Yeah, correct. It's not true to say they're not paying anything at all. And, you know, again, I would absolutely be delighted and would love PTSB, which I don't believe for one minute they will do. I would love PTSB to publish the actual data, not identifying data, but actual data. And I would ask PTSB to publish the data or give it to one of the larger firms to analyse it and give out the information. This is about people who can't pay. So let's say, Michael, they can't pay and they're not able to make any contributions to them. Your available rate will go up um, in relation to the costs involved and your tax will go up to house these people. There is a better and a clever and a more humane way to do this. And again, we must remember, mm. this is a bank that's 75% owned by the state where billions of euros were pumped into it. There was no hesitation to pump the money in when they couldn't meet their bills. We pumped the money in when they couldn't meet the bills and now there's no humane response. No one's looking for a free house here. No one's but, ever looked for a free house. But, looking but for a safe shelter. Do, do, do you reject what Permanent TSB is saying when they say that a, a third of these mortgages 
uh, have had no uh, 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 communication at all. A third of the mortgage holders have had no communication at all with the bank since they fell into arrears. You see, and, and I, I do reject it on the basis that many of these people have sought advice from ourselves, from maths, from personal insolvency practitioners who have not been able to offer them any assistance. So put, put, let's be honest about this, Michael. Mary and Joe approach you and say, here's my, my financial circumstances. I, I'm in arrears and I can't pay my mortgage. You look at the circumstances and you can see they can't pay the mortgage and they're not eligible for social housing. So it might be 50 euros above. Many families are, are paying massive childcare amounts of money. So they have got jobs, but the money's going back out the other side in relation to childcare. What do you tell that couple to do when the bank is looking to repossess the house? You say, ring the bank and volunteer for the bank to come and take your home and then they'll pursue you for the balance of the debt. Per and CSB have handled this whole matter for the last 10 years in a, in a very incompetent manner. And one of the main features of that, Michael, was for people that you've just described who could not pay their mortgage and wanted to leave their home. Many did want to leave their home and many volunteered to leave their home. Permanent CSB wouldn't recognise the fact they had no money and would not write off the debt. They demanded the full payment. And if you're being asked to make yourself homeless and have an accumulation of debt follow you, are you going to engage in a bank and volunteer for that? I respectfully suggest you're not. But can you continue to live in a home if you're not paying your mortgage? And after three and a half years, surely the time is up. No, I think you need to have a look at the person's circumstances. These are not million-euro homes. These are an average home of 175,000. The state will have to intervene in some shape or form or these people will put out in the street. And there needs to be some sensible accommodation to uh, look at uh, creative mechanisms to protect the state, to protect the mortgage holders. Um, and the bank has to take a, a, a view of this. They have to get involved in what happened to them when they were bailed out. And this is not about giving someone ownership of a home, Michael. This is just giving somebody uh, occupancy where they can stay in a modest home to protect the state, to protect their family and their kids for something they've done nothing wrong. They're very, very important. They've fallen on hard times for an economy ruined and wrecked and destroyed by same-set banks. When that happened to banks, the response of the state was to bail them out at all costs. When it's now happened to those individuals who've fallen on hard times, the response is to sell them to vultures and throw them out. And that in itself is despicable. Okay, but if you look at it from the bank's perspective, how is it supposed to operate uh, in a, a prudent sense uh, if €5 billion Euro is outstanding in non-performing loans? Well, first of all, you've got to go back to 10 years where they failed to visibly reduce those uh, by the description I gave earlier on by not recognising as other lenders did. And other lenders have done this the right way. Some are still behind and haven't done it uh, fully yet, but many have gone through more uh, arrears solutions than PTSB. Many well, offered... They've, they've uh, almost halved their bad loans, haven't they? They have, um, but they still have 25% up to this sale has brought it down to 16% uh, of non-performing loans. By the way, the EU are requiring 5%, Michael, mm. ahead for a further 10,000 families um, other than to be sold to vulture funds. And the, the lie and the mistruth that's here, and I'm saying this 100% confidently, is that these people can't pay. Are there some defaulters and messes who avoided engaging the bank? Absolutely. Are there some have deluded themselves thinking something better is coming down the line? Absolutely. They deserve to be sold and all will happen to them in due course. I'm not concerned about them. I am concerned about the vast majority of people who've been clients of ours, have been with MABS, have been with personal family practitioners who, who do, don't have the ability to pay a private rental market. Well, are, a third, are a third of uh, the mortgage holders messers uh, because a third of them haven't been cooperating with the bank, well, according the bank. to the I bank. Michael, this bank stole money from trackers, from people. I don't trust this or other banks. So respectfully, I'd suggest I'm not going to believe their data when they're spinning in relation to this. And the minister's out this morning and permanent TSB out this morning trying to turn people against each other around the country. I don't believe permanent TSB. 
I don't believe banks have stole and prevented being honest and disclosing. Okay, so 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 if the the data is published and it proves correct that a a third of the mortgage holders have not cooperated at all with the bank since falling into arrears, would you describe them as messers who don't deserve the houses that they're living in? I wouldn't know because we don't know if they can pay. A person who's a messer is someone who can pay their full mortgage and is avoiding doing so. Somebody who can't pay. But they're called squatters. No, they're not called squatters. But if you live in a house that you don't own, that you can't afford to pay rent on or a mortgage on, you're squatting. Well, then you've got a couple of tens of thousands of people being funded by the state who are squatters. Yeah, and 42,000 more mortgage holders are going to see their loans sold on, according to reports this morning, from different banks across the country. Absolutely. And these are people, these are citizens of ours who had a mortgage, who were functioning members of society, who've fallen on bad times, who no longer can afford to pay a mortgage. I don't know about you. I know you've got to do a job, but I want to live in a society that at least protects them. But it only protects them. If you want to take the hard, cold uh, view that these people are squatters and want to throw them out, actually, I would respectfully suggest you're advised, because what you should be doing is saying, what's going to cost me the least amount of money as a taxpayer, and what's going to prevent my variable rate mortgage increasing. This transaction is going to increase both of those for you, Michael. Instead of sitting back in the Department of Housing and saying, actually, what's the point in administering the... the and this is not 7,400 uh, people. This is 22,000 people. It's 7,400 mortgages. What is going to save me the taxpayer money and save my variable rate mortgage? Yes, dealing with the loans is going to help my variable rate mortgage, but in this manner, my taxes are going to go up because the cost of rehousing these people is going to be ast- astronomical. David, thanks for joining us, as always. Thank you indeed. David Hall is Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Mortgage Holders Organisation. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Most of the comments in this morning about back-to-school costs following your interview there at the top of the programme with June Tinsley from Bernardo's. Tom from Drogheda phoned in and Tom makes the point that his granddaughter has just finished in secondary school and her uniform is now lying in the back of the wardrobe. And as far as he, he knows, it's still in good condition. Mm-hmm. Could it not be recycled, he wonders. He says his his daughter has twins and she usually buys them a new uniform every year because they've outgrown the old uniform. And most of the time, they're in good enough condition too. Could they not be maybe resold? And he thinks that schools perhaps could look at having some kind of a second-hand sale at the end of the school year, maybe on the last day or something, with those who are moving on or have outgrown their uniforms could bring them in and pass them on to other students. Okay. He says, I think there's probably not a home in Ireland that doesn't have some kind of a uniform lying around the house. Mm. Yeah, well, I think most uh, people of a certain generation grew up with hand-me-downs. I think there's some schools who do have uh, schemes in place uh, where parents can pass on uniforms uh, to incoming students. Olive phoned in and Olive said that listening to the interview Mm. made her blood boil. She says, I put five children through school and through college, Michael. I had to save all my children's allowance during the year to cover the back to school costs when the time came around. She says, my husband and I didn't drink or smoke. He worked in Dublin bus. He went out at 5am in the morning and didn't get home until maybe 8 or 9 at night because he took every bit of overtime he could get. We paid our mortgage. She says, when my children were old enough, say 14 or so, they went out and they did odd jobs like cutting grass and cleaning windows. Then when they got older, they went into local supermarkets to work. She says, every 
everyone in the house worked hard. She says, then when I listen to this, I just think, are people just not doing enough or do they want it easy? She says, I used to, she said, you won't believe this, but I used to buy the original uniform, the Mm. jumpers. Mm. And then every year I'd cut the crest off the old jumper and I put it onto the new cheaper jumper that I bought. She said, I did everything I could to try and save costs. The first holiday we ever had was after my our honeymoon. Uh, after our honeymoon was the first holiday we ever had. And that was some 25 or 26 years later, she says. So you do have to make sacrifices to educate your children. The state can't do everything for you. She says uh, she's 72 years of age now. I had to leave school myself when I was 13 because my parents couldn't afford for me to go on further and I wanted the best for my children and we did our best by doing without Mm. at times. I think a lot of parents would like to do that sort of thing but they're not able to, they're not allowed to, the schools won't allow it and they have policies in place and designated uniforms and shops to buy the uniforms in and they insist that it's the official school uniform that the children present with. Uh, Let's uh, go to the phone now and uh, hear uh, about how Uh, Some people have woken up to find uh, that their cars are gone and that residents in Meath have been warned uh, that land cruisers are being targeted. Oh, Di Levin's news correspondent with uh, the Irish Farmers Journal is reporting about uh, this in the journal this week. He's on the line. Uh, And good morning to you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. That seems uh, to be an awful lot of land cruisers that are being taken. Yeah, and particularly in a a very small area. So the 10-kilometre area um, in the North Mead, um, and in the last two months, six Toyota land cruisers have been taken from that area alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in some cases, a second car has been taken as well. Yeah, so in two of those cases, there's a second car taken. And typically speaking, you know, it, uh, we've said it's Toyota Land Cruisers, but there has been a uh, Volkswagen uh, Jeep taken as well. Yeah. All right, and I take it that they're fairly valuable vehicles. Are, are they being stolen to order, or is that the theory, do you think? 
Well, I suppose we can only speculate. I mean, a lot of Toyota Land Cruisers are used as a um, farm vehicle. Um, this is not new. It sort of happened before. And the Guardian Navin say that they've never been recovered, um, even when there was a spate of tests previously. And I mean, there has been 19 vehicle tests in the last three months, um, and all bar four uh, were recovered. But that's not specific to these ones. We're talking about the six... Um, stolen in that 10 kilometre area the, the guard you don't think they will be recovered and we quite often hear from the guards on uh, the programme here and they talk about people breaking into houses uh, to get the keys to take the car and that's the only reason that they break into the house it's in order to be able to take the car uh, but you've been speaking to some victims in uh, these crimes who had the keys in the house but were hidden in the house but they managed to find the keys yeah, it's quite scary, actually, when you speak to the victims. You know, one of them said that his daughter woke up to the sound of engines starting. And it was after that that he realised that they'd broken in through the back door. And as you say, found keys that were hidden in the house. Um, and, and as you can imagine, it's quite uh, disconcerting. You know, uh, you, you know, your safety is or your, your, has been breached as such. And when you're still living in the house, it's, um, it's, a, it's quite a scary prospect, you know. All right. Uh, well, uh, as you say, uh, it's uh, a warning to people in North Meath uh, and uh, I'm sure nobody wants to be the next victim. Thank you indeed uh, for highlighting it with us here on the programme. Ida Levin's news correspondent with uh, the Irish Farmers Journal. Now let's go back to some more of uh, the comments that have been coming to us. Uh, what else have people been saying, Marie? We're just staying with that uh, topic, if I can. Marie from Drogheda on the school costs says that every year we hear about the cost of going back to school and it always seems to be increasing. That maybe it's time for a rethink that the government does try does provide some support through the back to school allowance but clearly from listening to the various surveys this is not reaching enough of those who perhaps need it and perhaps it's time to maybe think outside the box and reassess at how parents are supported. Um, good morning Michael this is from Betty Malahide the cost of school for families why don't the ministers give up their pensions <laughs> Betty's suggesting she don't, they don't need them with the salaries they have and maybe they could use some of that to help out the poor parents yeah. so there you go well, I don't know it depends on your lifestyle how much money you need of course yeah uh, a texter says the reality is Michael the seven post offices are closing in Meath surely the regular users of these post offices have a right to know that closures are imminent the government has pulled services away from post offices it's really no surprise mm, yeah well uh, I mean as uh, the postmasters union uh, explained to us uh, they're closing because the postmasters have uh, applied for this voluntary retirement scheme they want to retire uh, and that's the reason that they are closing and if they do close if their application are accepted, uh, well then you'll have uh, a post office open beside you if there's a population of 500 or more or within 15 kilometres of you. Paddy from Kells says Mr Ross is talking about giving millions a year to grandparents. He's referring, I think, to this so-called Granny's Grant. And he says, why can't they pay more and keep the post offices open? Why can't the government subsidise the post offices? Well, the government is subsidising the post offices. There's a a 50 million euro investment into the post office network. And as part of that scheme, there's a retirement package being made available to postmasters who wish to avail of it. Nobody is being forced to retire. Uh, There's no uh, uh, closures uh, that will be uh, forced on anybody. uh, And uh, if people wish to retire, well, then the scheme is open to them to apply to. 
Your interview yesterday with local TD uh, Declan Bernock certainly sparked plenty of reaction, Michael, not just on other media platforms, but also from our listeners. We got a, an email in from Therese yesterday who says, I was shocked by what she describes as the, as the outrageous bias by Declan Bernock on LMFM this morning. It's no wonder the Fianna Fáil are failing miserably with representatives like this. It's clear that... Uh, Deputy Bratnock has decided to put his personal circumstances not only before the country but also before his party. And Trey's in her book, she feels that Gavin Duffy is far from presidential material, mm, she says. Okay. Well, I'm sure some people would agree with that. Some people exactly. wouldn't agree with it. Declan Brannock says uh, he has his own views and he's going to vote in line with them, which is at odds with the party's position. Uh, but uh, I don't know. The party seems to be at sixes and sevens with itself, which we'll talk about in some more detail again a little bit later on. Uh, Declan Bernock says that uh, or no not Declan Bernock this listener the phoned in also in relation to that interview feels that the deputy is acting on his own that has he forgotten who elected him yes that's right it was the members of Fianna Fáil in the main uh, the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party has decided to back Michael D. Higgins, so Declan should be taking the same view as the party. Very good. Okay. Uh, and then just mm. if you just an interesting development to that story, um, Michael, this morning, Gavin Duffy himself has tweeted, uh, thank you, Declan Bernock, for endorsing my presidential bid. This is not so much a political as a personal endorsement. Declan and I are long-time buddies from our LMFM radio days. And then he goes on to say that my campaign will be over open and transparent. For the record, my company also provided some services to Declan Bernock in 2017 and my son Lorcan, then working in our business, was seconded to Deputy Bernock's office for a six-month term. Okay. So that's the latest on that. Now, yesterday on the programme, we heard uh, the North East Pile and Pressure campaign explain to us uh, that Airgrid had written a press release that was issued to this programme from the Department of Communications. It's as after we asked the Department of Communications for their view on statements made by Airgrid. As I say, uh, Airgrid apparently wrote that press release for the department. Uh, we also heard uh, that when the minister and his officials met with landowners and heard questions from landowners about Airgrid's proposed project and indeed the concerns that they had, uh, the officials wrote to Airgrid and asked them to tell them what to say back in response to the landowners' concerns. And we heard how Airgrid were monitoring Facebook pages and how questions uh, might be raised in the doll and that that had been published on Facebook and that sort of thing. As we said on the programme yesterday, we sent the documentation which was given under a Freedom of Information Act to the Northern Standard newspaper to the relevant ministers in the locality. There's four ministers involved, four TDs. Two of them are members of the Cabinet and two junior ministers, Heather Humphreys, Regina Doherty, Helen McEntee and Damien English. We haven't received a response from any of the Fine Gael TDs as yet, but Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy has subsequently issued a statement saying that the independent study into the cost and feasibility of undergrounding this project is now irrelevant because of the relationship between the department and our grid. Matt Carthy is on the line. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Um, this uh, independent study uh, was carried out, uh, I'm sure, by people uh, who would 
question your statement uh, and indeed would claim that their independence is truly independent. Yes, and I have no comment to make one way or another in relation to what the report may or may not say. We know that the minister has it. Um, he has it a long yet, time now, doesn't he? Uh, yes, and he hasn't published it. And the point that I'm saying is that it's almost now irrelevant as to what is in that report because the department are quite clearly being led in every regard by Airgrid. So what anybody else says becomes an irrelevance. I think the Northern Standard need to be commended for um, submitting the FOI request and then for disseminating the information in it. I want to commend your own programme for following on from um, from that because I believe this is a massive and very important public interest story that should send shockwaves through the political But there's system. no wrongdoing uh, involved. Uh, I mean, you're talking about the department communing with uh, the body that has been charged with spending the money that the department is making available for a vital piece of infrastructure. No, what we have is that a very worrying situation is that the department are receiving, in some cases, very bizarre updates from Airgrid, which run contrary to the reality on the ground in the communities in Cavan, Monaghan, Mead, Tyrone and Armagh, where the, this issue is so um, prevalent. And um, The updates, as you said, include monitoring of public statements and social media comments from elected representatives. Um, it includes you know, commentary in terms of well-attended briefing notes. It downplays the opposition that Airgrid are consistently faced with in these com- communities. Um, but the fact that the department are taking these reports and by all intents and purposes, treating those as the final word in any questions or any matters that arise, to me, cre- creates huge questions of credibility as to both the planning and the pro- um, political process. Because remember this, you're right, Airgrid have been charged with carrying out a particular job on the part of the state. But Airgrid are supposed to be answerable to the Minister for Communications, Climate Action and Environment. Instead, they're actually writing his answers for him. That is completely completely unacceptable and it goes against the entire process because Airgrid are now, and, and have made no secret of this almost, they're in conflict with the communities of mm. our region. And the department's actions have therefore place the government on the side opposite those communities. So, Are you suggesting there's any wrongdoing? I'm suggesting that there's very bad practice and that we have a situation now whereby the government is being led by the... And government policy on a... Well, give, give us one instance of bad practice that uh, should have been handled differently and how it should have been handled differently. Well, I think the very first instance you give, yeah. whereby a department is asked questions in relation to the actions of Airgrid. Yeah, Airgrid said that they could go on to the lands, that uh, they have a legal right to go on to the lands and uh, construct the pylons. Uh, we asked the department if that was true because we heard from campaigners that it wasn't true. Yes. Now, the department in that instance shouldn't have gone to Airgrid to seek the answer to that. I, um, and and there's, we can dispute the, the um, level of um, validity that the Airgrid response had and whether or not it was correct or not. Hmm. But the 
the fact and the point that I'm making is that Airgrid... Makes sense to me. No, in fairness, like Airgrid were on the programme saying, look, we can go onto the land and build these pylons whether people want us to or not. Uh, we went to the department... Uh, that's Airgrid's position. Yeah, that was their position. People said that's not true, right? Uh, and yeah. we went to the department and said, is it true or not? The department went to Airgrid and said, what did you say on LMFM? And what did you mean by that? And, the, and they wrote back to them and the department obviously looked at them and went, oh, well, OK, that makes sense to me. And then sent us back in the statement. Why? 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 It would be... It would be um, it would be a, situ- um, a situation akin to um, I say something on your program this morning that is disputed the following day. But it's a question by... of law, isn't it? <laughs> so, but Airgrid are not um, a provider of law; they're a provider of electricity. And the point that I make no, but the law is the law. If yeah. if the department yeah. ring up Airgrid and say what are we on about, and they say, oh well, we were referring uh, to this section of the law which allows the ESB access to lands uh, for vital pieces of infrastructure. Oh, okay, grand. Uh, and they've sent it back in a written format, and the department just sends it on because the department feels well that is legally sound. And there's a dispute in terms of Airgrid's interpretation of the law in relation to ESB acts and whether or not that applies to Airgrid. So but that's when the point. It's not being disputed by the department. The department obviously agrees with the position that Airgrid outlined. And this is and this is the crux of the problem. The department agrees without seeking any further explanation from the Attorney General's office or from anybody else with whatever Airgrid has said. And this is the crux of the point that I think needs to be made. We have a key, strategic, very important policy area of energy provision. And policy in that area is being led, not by elected politicians, not by even civil servants, not even by independent commentators, but by a company itself that is engaged in a conflict with the communities of Oz. And a company itself, which by its own admission, does not um, adhere to the principle of public acceptance when it comes to the provision of their infrastructure. Unlike similar companies right across Europe, I met and took a delegation, as you may remember, last year from Ireland, from all of the counties affected, including representatives of my own party, Father Tobin and um, Quavy O'Kellan and Noel Keelan and Michael Gallagher all came along, as did representatives of the North East Pylon Pressure Group, the, anti, the County Monaghan Anti-Pylon Group, the SEAT Group, in Armand Tyrone, and we visited with the company mm. that is providing a very similar project um, in in, Bel- in Belgium um, that interconnects the Be- Belgian and French electricity market. Um, now, there are always differences between both of those things, but what was crystal clear to us when they actually put in place the criteria that they use to decide the type of infrastructure that is used, everything on that list is the exact same as Airgrid use, except for the very first item that Allegro use. And the very first criteria that they use or they assess when they're um, developing um, technology is public acceptance. And that is the point that is, has been okay. missing from the air grid. And the, and the final point I will make is, is this, because the department, as well as being led by Airgrid, are actually all also being misled because even though Airgrid are monitoring what elected representatives in this region are saying, they're actually not listening to the very clear message that we're conveying on part of our um, our, our constituents that the north-south interconnector will only be completed, and I want it to be mm. completed, by the way, but it will only be completed on the basis that it is developed 
using underground technology that is available. And because they are being led by Airgrid, the department are refusing to hear that message. And until they hear that message, the North-South interconnector simply won't go ahead. I think we'll have more discussion on this at a a later time. Of course, the North-South interconnection is a, a, a connection that should take place between two jurisdictions. The difference between this one and the one north of the border is that the politicians aren't taking their seats. Uh, There was hope at one stage that uh, the decision by the planning board in the north might be overturned because of that. Uh, But you wouldn't have that conversation at all if there was a united Ireland. Why does Sinn Féin not want a united Ireland? (laughs) Sinn Féin absolutely want a united Ireland. Is that that Thursday's position? That's our position since because on, on, on Monday on, on Monday Sinn Féin didn't want a poll on the United Ireland uh, so I mean you're not that interested in it on Tuesday you did no we want a poll every day of the week we want that poll not on Monday day. yes we did uh, Michael and there has been some play acting I have to say in terms of the interpretation of the comments that Mary Lou Macdonald um, said on Monday it's actually the same position that I've been articulating as chair of our party's United Ireland project. That a border poll should be put to one side until the dangers posed by Brexit are mitigated. Uh, That's play-acting to say that that was saying that you didn't want a a, a poll on Monday. On Tuesday... That's actually not what what Mary Lou Macdonald said. What she said was that she didn't want a poll to take place in the context of uncertainty and confusion um, that um, clearly Brexit would provide. But in terms of what that means in real terms, is exactly what we have been saying for the past number of years. We want all of those who aspire to a united Ireland, and that includes other political parties who claim to share that objective with us, to come together. On on Monday, Mary Lou Macdonald said that the question of a a poll should be put to one side uh, for as long as there's uncertainty about Brexit. On Tuesday, she said, no, well, we should have a, a, a poll. No, our position is that we want to see a poll take place. We want that poll to take place in the context that people know what they're voting for, because quite rightly, people will have questions as to what a united Ireland will look like, what the political, the Mm. constitution, the economic framework will be, what safeguards will be put in place for you. And is is that the final position of the party and who decided it? Because that's the question that's been asked by the opposition now. Who's making decisions in Sinn Féin? And is Mary Lou Macdonald being told uh, what to say in relation to a border poll? Uh, Because uh, that has always been Sinn Féin's position and no new leader is going to change that position. This is what I find um, bizarre. I think in terms of you know, every time Mary Lou Macdonald or any, and particularly our senior women um, leaders in the party say something that men in other political parties will jump and say they're being told what to say. No, that's, no that's not what ha- what's happening. It's not because she's a woman. It's because she said two different things. She's well fit to speak for herself. I think she has stated quite clearly that she wants a poll to take place in the context where people are informed as to what the outcome of that poll will mean, not only for their own lives and their communities, but for the country as a whole. In other words, that we don't end up in the situation that the Brexiteers in England ended up in, that where they campaigned for something for 30 years and then the day after they succeeded had absolutely well, no the, idea. Well, they're, ver- they're very like Sinn Féin, aren't they? Because they're continuously contradicting themselves. No, we're not contradicting ourselves at all. I, listen... The worst kept secret, if it has been a secret, is that Sinn Féin want a united Ireland and we want it as soon as possible. And we are working every day to try and secure that. On a Thursday. Uh, But God knows what you'll say on a Friday. We 
believe every day of the week, Michael, that a united Ireland will make us all better off economically, politically and socially. It will allow our country to realise its full potential. It will allow us as a nation to be the best that we can be. And the partition has absolutely failed citizens north, south, east and west of our country. And we will continue and do all in our power to try and continue. Peter Robinson uh, appears to be more of a Republican than Mary Lou MacDonald at times. He was talking about preparing for a united Ireland last Friday. Mary Lou MacDonald dismissed the idea on Monday. Uh, On Tuesday then she changed her mind and all of her opponents are scratching their heads with Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and Labour describing it as a U-turn. Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil and Labour are engaging in the silly season political posturing that sometimes happens at this time of year. What I would encourage Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil in particular because they have actually constitutional positions in support of the United Ireland to work with us in Sinn Féin to actually set out what... Charlie Flanagan, the Minister for Justice, said the hard men are not far away from the decision-making process in Sinn Féin. Is he right? I'll tell you, I'll tell you what the decision-making process in Sinn Féin is, Michael. The ultimate authority, as you know, is our Ardesh. We're the only political party that actually has an Ardesh where our members dictate to the elected representatives, myself included, what our policies are, and we are bound to them. Quite Mm -hmm. clearly, that is in support. And in the interim, on a day-to-day basis, the Sinn Féin Ard Corla, of which I'm a member, deals with any issues that arise, including, as we will do next month, selecting Mm -hmm. our presidential candidate, which I have no doubt whoever it is will be advocating and arguing that we need to come together and actually start planning for a united Ireland because in my view it's happening much sooner than many many recognise and I think one of the reasons why you have this game playing as I um, describe it is because Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are actually trying to avoid the substantive debate issue and that is how can we actually deliver what we all say we want to see which is a united Ireland and how can we bring that about as quickly all right, as possible. Alright, got to leave there, I'm afraid I'm out of time. As, away as possible. Okay, thank you for joining us this morning. Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin MEP. Uh, I'm reading this morning uh, that uh, Fianna Fáil TD John McGuinness is asking Hall Martin to clarify uh, the Fianna Fáil position on uh, the presidential election. This follows on from Declan Brannock yesterday when we asked him if Eamon O'Keeve should be a candidate as an independent or as a Fianna Fáil candidate and he said, yeah, well, whatever, but uh, it's Gavin Duffy that I'll be supporting. Uh, let's find out uh, how views are elsewhere in the party. In Loud, Emma Coffey, a local councillor joins us and in Meath, Councillor Wayne Harding joins us as well. Emma Coffey, uh, what do you think of Declan Brannock's position? Well, Declan is big enough and, 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 and experienced enough to speak for himself and that's a matter of Declan but uh, I mean my view is is that the, the party, parliamentary party uh, uh, front bench took a decision, a meeting was held, I believe Declan was mm. involved in that meeting and a decision was made that they would back the Michael D. Michael Higgins. Higgins yeah. mm-hmm. and, and, and I mean, that's the view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously... The Have you heard from them in Galway? Because uh, there's a, a lot of, of uh, support for the idea that that was a decision taken just by 22 Oireachtas members and that at the time of making the decision, it wasn't known that there was going to be a contest. Uh, and now that there is going to be a contest because Sinn Féin will have a, a candidate and there might be another independent, that Fianna Fáil should look at, at fielding a candidate. I don't believe so. I mean, yes, uh, we. I think na- uh, nationally, all councillors received uh, correspondence from Councillor Crow mm. in relation to his uh, intentions and his views on it. But I, I, th- I, I believe this is an, a non-event. A decision mm. was made, uh, and a decision was made that the, that the party would back. But Mike it seems Eamon O'Keeve wants to run. 
Well, Ian, Eamon O'Keefe is silent and has not come out and said mm. that. But that's so, part of the tactic. Well, I, look, ask Eamon O'Keefe that, and I'm sure well, you've been. I'm sure you've been trying to contact him on it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, his voice you know, is full. Is, yes. uh, but his silence is is is, is you speaks can take volumes, it, it yeah. speaks volumes yeah. in respect yeah. of it. Yeah. And and you know, Eamon O'Keefe is a very experienced politician, and I'm certainly not going to speak for Eamon O'Keefe yeah. uh, in regards to it. But w- publicly, w- will you speak for him when when you get to the point that he, he loses the party membership? Well. We're not even there, so you're yeah. surmising. So I'm not going to comment on a surmising mm. or, or, or otherwise. Eamon O'Keefe is a very senior but he, member. he would get the support of four councils, wouldn't he? That's a matter. He hasn't even... I'm not even going to comment on that, Michael, on the basis of... We're, you're talking in semantics here. Yeah. Uh, but no, absolutely... Uh, look, the decision was made by Fianna Fáil party to back Michael D. Higgins. Mm. I'm very much of the view that that's what we're going to mm. do. The whip was rela- relaxed in relation to that it councillors, if there was an approach made to individual council chambers, mm. that Fianna Fáil members could... Would you not be getting it in the ear from your family and friends and colleagues, for that matter, to think that you reject Eamon de Valera's grandson in favour of the Labour but man? But he's not... Ev- uh, sorry, Michael, you're actually going way... In favour of the Labour man? Seven and eight and nine steps ahead in respect of it. Eamon O'Keefe's name is not in the hat. And it was very evident this week by senior members within the party that Eamon O'Keefe's name will not be in the hat as a Fianna Fáil uh, so, I mean, yeah, because, you're talk- because because he wants to sound, uh, but, but uh, I mean, unless we're stupid, it's it, it's it, it seems to be a case that he wants to be a candidate. He'll end up being an independent candidate, and he'll lose the party membership. According to your view, the fact that Eamon O'Keefe has not come out and said one thing. Do you think I'm other, mad? Yes, I do. <laughs> I think I think it's actually silly season, <laughs> and we're a, making a new, uh, we are making trying uh, to make a news uh, story uh, out well, of absolutely enough, uh, nothing. I think it's about ti- <laughs> I think it's about time somebody said it. Thank you for that, uh, Wayne Harding. Do you think I'm mad? Um, uh, well, you're entertaining. Definitely, <laughs> there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, I don't think you're mad insofar as that if if Eamon O'Keefe um, steps out of line in relation to. What, what the parliamentary party decided, which was not to run a candidate, well then he will be an independent candidate. If you get, he, I, I wouldn't underestimate him getting the support of four councillors, but but rules are rules, and we're part of a democratic party. I, I, I listen to Emma and agree with everything she's after saying. All right, uh, and would you support uh, Eamon O'Quibbe's bid uh, if he was to put himself forward? My, my, um, I've spoken with all my colleagues as whip of the of the Fianna Fáil party in in Mead, and we are going to listen to all candidates mm. and go into a room, agree uh, the decided candidate as a group, and um, then when it when it comes on the agenda in the, in the September meeting, um, we we vote as a, as a as a block. Incidentally, Emma Coffey, I take it you wouldn't uh, support uh, an O'Queeve bid, would you? I'll be very honest with you, Michael. As a group, we are going to do very, exactly the same okay. in, in relation to that. So any... Uh, you might support any Gavin ca- Any candidate you or potential candidate. You might support Gavin candidate. Duffy, you might support Eamon O'Keefe, Joan Freeman, and anybody else. Depending, on the, yeah. you know, depending mm. on, on the presentation made and, mm. and what we see as a group. So I mean, You look, might abstain? You might vote against? No, look, I, as a democratic uh, party, we were we have been told that mm. we can basically nominate who we see fit, and as a group, that's what we'll debate the issues within a room, and we'll decide who would be the best, most suitable candidate that we feel should be should be nominated. Okay, but you're not going to 
I'm not going to personally no, no because no, I haven't okay. I haven't actually listened mm, okay. whilst I've, I've, I'm following it with avid interest yeah. as I think most people are um, you know until we get in a council chamber and we actually mm. we get down to brass tacks well then then okay. I'll make the decision Wayne Harding what about you personally have you a preferred candidate I, I haven't got a preferred candidate but um, I do I do remember back to the last presidential campaign and there was an article in one of the local papers where um, a, 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 a couple of, of Fianna Fáil councillors endorsed nearly every candidate that was in the race and my feeling is that there's 31 local authorities that at the moment there seems to be three or four people dipping their toes into the ring let them into the race mm-hmm. because they're very credible candidates exactly. Joan Freeman has a background Gavin Duffy um, and and uh, Cage. and so I, I, I think these are very, very strong candidates and Gavin Duffy, of course, is a mead man. So I'd, I'd let them all into the ring. Mm. Uh, do you think it's possible for any member of Fianna Fáil to vote against Eamon O'Queeve, even if he was to stand as an independent? Well, Eamon O'Queeve is... The Parliamentary Party have this, have decided that Fianna Fáil are not, are not running but that's the problem isn't it uh, and I mean the problem here is that Amy McQueeve is literally in your blood uh, and perhaps the party leader needs to go elsewhere because he's not necessarily in your blood is he uh, there's, there, there, I'm not quite sure what you mean by that to be honest which as far as I'm uh, concerned I'm, I'm a member I'm a member of a democratic party yeah. um, and I will, I will and we have rules and procedures and I'll follow them as whip of the, of the, of the party in need yeah but yeah. I, I'm talking about in line with the policies and procedures you'd be allowed to vote for Eamon O'Queeve as an independent uh, you're not if, being you're not if, being whipped on this if if if, um, if Eamon O'Queeve um, gets the support of four councils yeah um, well then he's running as an independent and yeah. we can make our decisions as, as you said the whip is uh, uh, make uh, our own decisions uh, and, and he will lose his party membership and that will really result in disarray for Fianna Fáil um, I, I think you're surmising mm, I am yeah and, I, and, and there has been complete <laughs> yeah, silence yeah. from Eamon O'Queeve yeah. so I, I'm not sure where this is going yeah no I am surmising what, 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 what do you think yourself I don't know. I, I, how, can I, how can I answer that? I don't know. Well, 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 I mean, you have an opinion. As you say, you're not being whipped. You're uh, not just a, a grown-up person. You're a much-respected uh, public representative uh, who has... Uh, well, thank you. A, 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 well, I, I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, but you've also got a very clear insight into all of this. And uh, I'm sure that you would be able to... Uh, at least counter what I'm suggesting, which is that it would result in disarray within Fianna Fáil. Um, I, I've, I've told you at the outset, we are going to meet every individual who comes into, on the 27th of August, who comes into to, um, Mead County Council to make their pitch for the mm. presidency and then decide. And that's the way, that's the way I'm going to continue. Mm. And and I can't I can't talk about disarray because um, there's there's silence there's a, there's a flag being flown all right mm. but that's all it is all right uh, what about uh, a situation uh, again to surmise or to uh, use a hypothetical situation if we had Eamon O'Keeve as an independent and Fianna Fáil supporting Michael D Higgins uh, who would you campaign for <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm 
I'm definitely not. I don't need to answer those questions. I really don't. <laughs> I know you and don't. Because, but, uh, because, because you can't. You're, you're putting a, 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 a summation in front of me that, that I haven't got all the answers. I haven't until it put happens. it in front of you at all. I think your party, <laughs> your, your Oireachtas <laughs> members have put it in front of you. And, you know, the fact that uh, Eamon O'Keefe is saying nothing says it all. The fact that you're saying nothing says it all. The fact that Eamon Coffey is saying nothing says it all. Eamon Coffey. Eamon Coffey. And the fact, I think, the, I think the fact you have that, Eamon, the, I think you have Eamon the, on the brain the, there. The, 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 the fact that everybody is very giggly, I think, says it all. There's a, a nervous giggle that I'm hearing this morning. Emma Coffee. Uh, uh, no, because I, I, I just think you have a big wooden spoon, Michael, here, <laughs> and trying to, to store it. I mean, I think it's very clear. Eamon O'Keefe hasn't come out. Mm. He has. He has quite look as is natural because Eamon O'Keefe is a, is a force. He has a lot of support and a lot of support on the ground because he's a very credible uh, public representative and has been for a considerable number of years. And it's in his. Fianna Fáil is in the blood mm-hmm. and Eamon O'Keefe is in the blood of Fianna Fáil. Yep. But the fact is, he is not a candidate at present. At present. And, and mm-hmm. what I am suggesting is, is that all these summations that you're putting forward are simply that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, nobody can make that decision until, for instance, okay, well, someone has put forward. If he does announce, uh, I hope you'll come back and we'll do the DNA test. Well, by all means, all I would right. enjoy it. Okay, thank you very much indeed to both well, of I, you. I, I'd enjoy that too. <laughs> all right, thank you indeed. Uh, Wayne Harding, Finnefall Councillor, and Maid Emma Coffey, Finnefall Councillor in Louth. Sinn Féin Councillor Kenneth Flood joins us now to talk about unauthorised works uh, that were carried out at the Buttergate in uh, Drogheda. There was a report into this. You've been looking for the report for some time, as we heard yesterday, and you received it then yesterday evening. Is that right, yeah? Yeah, so I'll, mm-hmm. I'll start with thank you mm-hmm. to LMFM for, for running the story yesterday. Um, on, until um, it was put out, I had several months of emails to um, various council officials up to and including the chief executive asking for this report mm. um, after the National Monument Service said it had been completed. Now, and just explain to us what the Buttergate is. So the Buttergate is a 13th century Norman gate, one of the part of the town's defences. Um, no one knows the, the, the exact reason the Buttergate was built mm. because there was no it wasn't leading to anywhere uh, at the time. The gates beside it had a, had a more significance in the defence and the entry and exit points of the town. But the Buttergate itself is a little bit of an anomaly because uh, the exact reason why it was put there uh, mm. is not exactly known. Uh, it's a room, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, some people would see it as that uh, and uh, others would see it as a hugely significant piece of architecture. Uh, obviously, there were some well-intentioned people who decided that they could do the area up. And I'll just read a little bit of the non-technical summary from uh, the report. And it said that the works, these unauthorised works that were carried out, uh, included surface, clearance of overgrowth from within and uh, surrounding the monument, clearance of ivy from the gate and surrounding walls, modification of a pre-existing gap through a 19th century wall, minor ground disturbance to create earth cut steps and allow for the insertion of concrete block steps and excavations within the gate, which expose a number of archaeological features and disturbed stratified archaeological deposits. So, well-intentioned as it may have been, uh, there was damage and the experts who looked at this feel it was significant damage. Yeah, um, as, as a detailed report, um, the excavations inside the gate have clearly impacted on the archaeological matter and had a potential cause for the damage had the works not been stopped. Now, uh, these unauthorised works started in October it was publicised in the paper that they were going to be done. That caused concern along many of the, the residents of the town who contacted myself among the Heritage Officer and the County Council who then directed us on to 
the National Monument Service. We also contacted the OPW because previous uh, remedial uh, upkeep of, of the area was done in 2006 by the OPW mm. and the auspices of the OPW. Um, you did consent from the minister, actually. Absolutely. It, it, it's, yeah. it's a legal matter. It is yeah. a legal matter. And the, the act is detailed um, that it, it is a legal matter. It, you cannot go near a, a national monument like that uh, without ministerial consent. Now, if people... Who, who did? Who did? The defenders of Drawdown Councillor Frank Godfrey. Um, Frank Godfrey said at the last council meeting when I was asking for this report, it was his foot soldiers on the ground who did X, Y and Z uh, in the area. Independent councillor of the mayor of Drogheda. In the, the mayor of Drogheda. Mm. There's video of him with a spade in his hand. Okay, and what, it, what, what, what questions have you got for the mayor now? Why did you carry out these unauthorised works? Why did you continue after you were asked to stop initially for several more months? Um, the, the reasons uh, for this monument to be protected are very, very clear. There's a law there in place to protect this monument. It's very, very clear. All that was willfully ignored. Even after the works were stopped, a few months ago, there was another newspaper article from Mayor of Drada, Frank Godfrey, saying that he wants to go back in and continue with his works, mm. even though it's been listed and detailed exactly why this should not happen. As well-intentioned as it is, the, the laws are there for a reason. And I'll give an analogy of if somebody's sick and you say we're going to give them this medicine because something needs to be done, it can make things worse. And in this case, it could have made things a lot worse. There was fines of uh, medieval pottery, bone mill, mm. and deposits directly linked to the use of the gate found it, in the survey afterwards. Is that um, what you might call a, 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 an unexpected up to this? Uh, it, that, that, that it was fortuitous to have come across this absolutely material as a result of this unauthorised work. Yeah, absolutely fortuitous because if the authorised work had to continue, that, that could have been cleared away. Right. Uh, there's been modification to a 19th century gate there. I, mm. We don't know what has been removed from that area. And you can't have a few lads come in and build a few steps, like. No, absolutely Or clear not. off the ivy and pull down the wall. No. <laughs> and there's, uh, again, like this is built with lime mortar and you're talking about putting in concrete and hammering in uh, wooden slabs and so on. It's all detailed here in the report. And all of that, it's archaeological cultural heritage vandalism that's it that's what it is mm. as well intentioned as, as what as it is when it was initially started and they were initially contacted by Lowe County Council to stop it should have been stopped right there and then and the council now is being directed to take a, a number of steps to undo what was done and to rectify the damage yeah absolutely um I haven't seen a budget for that. I haven't seen a timeline for that, which is uh, some of the questions that I will be asking again um, in the council chamber and I'm not the chief executive. Um, but there is a lot of stu- of things to be done to fix this. Um, mm. And the report says that what they did clearly impacted on the archaeological material and had the potential to cause further damage. Yeah. So bad and all as it is, it could have been worse. If they hadn't have been stopped um, by being 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 called um, into Low County Council, but but Councillor Garfield had been told several times to stop. He's in the newspaper detailing that he'd been told to stop. But he's going to continue. That's what throws up so many questions in my mind. Mm. That's why I was wondering: was this report not furnished, uh, given to us immediately? It was because Low County Council took so long to get on top of this and and to stop. Um, now we know the Buttergate and, and the town walls and everywhere has been neglected o- o- over the years. Focus does need to be put on those areas. We do push it in the council chamber. We'll continue to push it in the council chamber, but it still doesn't mean that you can go and ignore the law, don't seek ministerial consent, and modify 
an artefact of significance as the border gate in the town. We'll ask the mayor to come back in and talk uh, to you about this with us on the programme in the coming days. But thanks for coming into us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin Councillor Kenneth Flood brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. 